Hi, I'm Amy Blackthorne, and this is Blackthorne Grove. Hello, I'm Amy Blackthorne, and this is the Blackthorne Grove, a podcast where witchcraft meets with good friends over tea to talk about the nature of magic and community. So today I will be speaking with Nicholas Pearson, who is an amazing human, you will find out, I'm sure. Uh, Nicholas is a flower essence practitioner and researcher with a love for plants who grew alongside his love for the mineral kingdom, best known for his work with crystal healing and Reiki. Nicholas is also a practicing witch and occultist. An internationally acclaimed presenter, Nicholas is the author of several books, including Crystals for Karmic Healing, Crystal Basics, and the forthcoming Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden, and he lives in Orlando, Florida. Welcome! Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited. So you you guys weren't there. It was just Nicholas and I. I stopped in Orlando uh, three years ago. That sounds uh, on, about right. <laughs> I was visiting during, I was right before Botanical Magic came out. I was visiting a really amazing festival down that way. And so I built in an extra day so I could see Orlando and uh, the friend and I were traveling with, we, we said, you know what, let's stop in Avalon. And the amazing Nicholas was just waiting there, bated breath, didn't know, you know, a lifelong friendship was about to erupt. And here we are three years later and like six books for you, right? <laughs> Something like that. It's, it's been a crazy few years. <laughs> He is a writing machine and I and I feel like a slacker next to you. <laughs> this uh, is No, please don't. We 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 all do it in our own time. <laughs> Every project has its own life. That's right. So the first thing I want to ask you is, are you wearing any stones today? Oh, you clocked me. I'm actually not, but that's because they're all on my desk. <laughs> I've, I could show you like a thousand things. I've, I've got some obsidian nearby to cut through my own BS. That's right. Um, yeah, I've been keeping some amethyst near me for inspiration. I always have stuff like pyrite and fluorite on my desk when I write to keep me like in the zone and focused because um, it turns out the the more projects I write, the less focus I have. And I always thought it would be the opposite. <laughs> <clears throat> totally think today i am wearing uh pedrasha sapphire Ooh. and some moonstone and then my 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 beads of awesome today my my dear friend uh cindy at joyous sin designs created this about two weeks ago um her name is artemis it is tanzanite fluorite morganite and herkimer diamond wow that sounds like it would kick butt it really does <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so do you consider yourself a witch? I mean, what is what is the label that you use most commonly? I mean, is it where do you where do you start there? Yeah, you know, um, I would say for the majority at least of my public practice, my my occulty side has been kind of in the background compared to all the other things that I do that might be more, we'll say new agey or metaphysically, although I I'm, I'm indifferent to all those kinds of labels. I have considered myself a witch since, you know, probably about 13 or 14 yes. when I, I first discovered witchcraft. Uh, these days I use the label occultist a lot because it, it's a wider umbrella, it casts a wider net, and I, I do things outside of what we might consider witchcraft in traditional and non-traditional 
senses. I do things outside of occultism too. So um, I, I will use the label that meets people in the middle. Like what, what terms can I use to help other people understand my practice and where I'm coming from? I'm not super attached to um, having a, a specific name badge that says, hi, I'm Nicholas, I'm blank. Um, because we all wear so many hats. And I think that's the beautiful thing about witchcraft. There's no single definition for it. There's no single form of practice. There's no one way to do it. And uh, that's why it's a comfortable label for me. That's beautiful. It's. I think we get sort of lost in trying to explain ourselves so much that we, they, you're right, we can sort of narrow ourselves down, paint ourselves into a corner. That's a really great way of looking at it. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. What was it like when you first wrote, uh, first signed your first contract and you're sitting there waiting to write word one, what are the, what are the things that you hoped to, to manifest in your, in your public persona? So my great love, I mean, other than rocks, my, my great <laughs> love for the work that I do with rocks has always been education. So I, with my first book, I had two, two real missions. One was to like prove to myself that I could be a writer. Uh, I never finished a degree in college. I had a really rigorous academic background leading up to and through college. Um, but uh, a whole lot of factors took me out of it. And I, I always felt like there was something missing, some some inner inner battle that I hadn't won there. And so writing a book start to finish and being kind of scholarly for being kind of woo at the same time was important to me. But more important than that was teaching people how to think and how to think for themselves. So woven into any of my books, whether I'm writing about rocks or, or other topics, I really like to kind of paint a picture, like illustrate how we can break something down, use some critical thinking skills, apply as much science as is reasonable. You know, when I'm, when I'm dealing with rocks, geology and mineralogy are concrete things. We can all agree on them sometimes because <laughs> science can be fluid too. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not here to take away someone's personal, subjective, spiritual experience. You know, the UPG, the unverified personal analysis, that is totally yours. And I don't want to invalidate that or step on it. But can we look at the mechanisms that might be driving it? So in the world of crystals, it's like, what, what relationship does composition have between these common experiences that people have with crystals? What about formation process or crystal structure? And how can we start to draw our own conclusions from it? So even though my first book is like hyper intensive, it's called the seven archetypal stones, and it really focuses on seven rocks. Like we go really deep with just these seven, but it's kind of a platform. If you can make it through the exercises, if you can see the way I've um, illustrated those sort of archetypal, deeper kind of platonic models for how those seven stones work, then you can apply the same mode of thinking to any other crystal. And that's really been my ulterior motive for everything I've ever written because I love to teach. And, you know, the, the, the best kind of teaching I think is teaching people to be self-sufficient. So it's, it's not entirely self-serving in the long run because people don't need the book anymore, right? And that's a good thing. But please, by all means, buy my books. <laughs> <laughs> buy all the books. It's so funny. When we, when we look at what we're given and what we have to provide our community with, it's so funny the things that we were like, okay, I'm, we make this mental checklist of all the things I want to accomplish with one book. I mean, it's, that's a, so much to put on one book. You know, I want, I want to know that I can write a thing. I want to know that I can, but witchcraft and magic, um, occultism, they're all about discernment. 
being able to tease out those pieces. So it's such a great goal to make sure that when people leave, they leave knowing not just more than when they started the book, but also how to manipulate the energies that we're working with, how to move forward for themselves. I Exactly. I want to, I don't want to lead people. I want somebody to walk beside me. I want to make sure that people understand how to do this for themselves. Perfect. Yeah. yeah it's such a big thing. And there are a lot of, we'll say, witchy, metaphysically, energy kind of base systems that you really can't do any harm with. I mean, Reiki is a good example. There's, you know, no harm, no foul, never too much or too little, but like you can, you can mess stuff up with plants. You can mess stuff up with crystals. You can mess stuff up with witchcraft. You probably won't, especially if you have a good practice and a solid foundation, but there are so many people these days trying to sprint before they've learned to crawl. Yes. And, um, you know, especially in the TikTok era with this Moldavite craze and everything else, like I just, I, I want to make sure people know the basics. Like, can you focus on your breath for more than two or three breaths at a time? Do you know mm -hmm. how to ground and center? Can you kind of step out of your ego mind just enough to observe what's happening? Like, that's, that's really critical to any sort of energy work, but especially with crystals. Like, can you, can you just observe instead of judging, labeling, directing, moving? Can you just be with that? And if you can just be with that, then you can come back to it later and put all those labels on it. And then, then you start to see like, what is the common theme here? What's, what's going on underneath all this? And I, I, I don't always kind of couch it in these terms, but you know, when we work with plants in occult herbalism, it's the same idea. We, we are present with the spirit of the plant. It's not the material body of the plant going into our incense or our tincture or getting tossed into the fire that's doing the work. That is the vessel for the consciousness of the plant. And we have to respect that underlying consciousness. And I feel like in occult herbalism, that's, that's spoken out loud so much that many people get it without it being spoken. But in crystals, it's, it's not really the same thing. People view it as like this inert piece of matter that's gonna fix my life. It's a magic pill. <laughs> and um, I mean, newsflash, it's not. You can buy all the Moldavite in the world. You're gonna have the same life unless you do the work. It's so funny when we look at, and then Multivite's gone through some some little crazes, you know, over the last, we'll say 20 years. Yeah. You know, the, it, every so often it just sort of bubbles to the surface and, and someone gets Multivite crazy, but I have never seen this amount of hysteria over one stone in my lifetime. It really is incredible. I mean, I, I've definitely seen things rise and fall in popularity, but there are so many factors. Um, I mean, last year was rough. Let's not sugarcoat that. <laughs> if, if there were a quick fix for what happened globally in the past year, I think anybody would want it. So people are hungry for change. People are really eager to get out of that stagnancy. And stones like Moldavite are known for getting us out of stagnant patterns, for assisting or catalyzing the process of transformation. And we couple that with an already limited market uh, essentially no, no new Moldavite came to North America last year. 
not one single stone was was imported directly from the Czech Republic. I mean, um, buyers and sellers, of course, traded back and forth across borders, but there, there was no real digging to be done just when it was thought that there'd be some new mining for Moldavite, a second wave of COVID hit, which caused um, really strict lockdowns in the Czech Republic. And then over winter is not a great time because the gravel freezes up. So there just there was no new Moldavite dug out of the earth last year, at least not in any let's say economically viable scale, I'm sure someone in their backyard was like, hey, look at this little green rock. But <laughs> I mean, certainly not, not in a commercial kind of mining sense. So that you know, scarcity always fuels popularity and vice versa. So we've got this sort of um, self-fulfilling prophecy of a stone that's already finite becoming more finite because it's more popular. And the more popular it is, the more the supply dwindles and, and it just keeps spiraling. And uh, with with the rise of TikTok as well, where you can make a 15 second video that's really outrageous and has some great music that goes viral with no, no real substance to it. We, mm -hmm. we see Moldavite being blamed for everything from like the death of loved ones and car accidents and abusive relationships ending and miscarriages and job promotions and getting fired. And like, I don't deny that the occult principles in, in crystals or anything else for that matter certainly have an impact on our lives. That is, that is a measurable and tangible reality in my life. But did you really do the work? And if you didn't do the work, why is it Moldavite's fault? Like you can get a membership to a gym, but if, <laughs> if you don't go to the gym, nothing changes. So you can buy all the Moldavite you want, but if you're not engaged in the work, Moldavite's not the reason stuff's happening. And it, it comes down to like my favorite mantra. Correlation is not causation. Yes. It's so uh, fantastic. <laughs> it's like a breath of fresh air. The hysteria <clears throat> is great for getting likes. Oh, my life is awful and nothing, everything I have. I, I have put this in my pocket 36 hours ago and haven't moved from my couch, but all of a sudden my life is awful. <laughs> and it's not the stone's fault. <laughs> right. I am so glad that you're doing the the Moldavite class via Zoom coming up. I am <laughs> wish I, I just want to sit so many people down and say, look, this is this is not this is not what's going wrong in your life, and this is something we can do to fix it. It's gotten to the point where I walk into my local witchy shop uh, that carries my candles and my books and my teas every day that I walk in. There's there's seven people standing in line wanting you know, they're tiny, tip, tiny chips of Moldavite mm -hmm. to the point where when they can't get it, they're just grabbing any green rock they can find. You have no idea what this is. Could be Prionite, could be Kababa Jasper. If it's green, they want it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, eventually the bubble will crash, prices will fall, something else will rise in popularity. This, this happens periodically. So um, I am not sure what the the next really big thing is going to be. I've got some theories, but I'm I'm eager to see what plays out next because I think what's going to happen is as the as the hype falls away and hopefully sensible information takes the place of the hype, people will be inclined to cover the basics first. I love Moldavite. It's a great rock. I wear it on an almost daily basis. But you know what else is really wonderful? Quartz, Jasper, Tiger's Eye, Calcite. Oh my gosh. I 
if, like, if, I, <laughs> if, if I had to go to a desert island with only one mineral species, it might be calcite because you're never going to get tired of the colors, the crystal forms. I mean, every different part of the world it comes from, it looks so different and uh, it's so enchanting and so evolutionary and humble. And that's, that's the kind of rock that, that fuels long-term growth. So sure, we use our, our high vibe stones, a term I, I dislike uh, immensely, but we use those, <laughs> those intensive stones or those consciousness raising stones for, for short bursts of work. And then we have to kind of fill in the gaps with things that give us more stable growth that help us nurture the roots. And if we don't plant those roots in, we, we don't thrive, we don't flourish. I mean, imagine a tree with no root system. You're going to be able to just push it over with one finger. It doesn't last. <laughs> It's like those, uh, my neighborhood, we had a really vicious storm come through after a succession of heavy rains really soaked the ground. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't, you know, we were sitting in my living room, everything's fine. This is a couple of years ago. So, you know, you can have people in your house <laughs> <laughs> and the electricity goes out. It's like a horror movie. The, the lightning crashes and you hear the loudest whomp and the whole house shakes. Mm. You're like, oh, I wonder what that was. It wasn't until the next morning we're out trying to excavate the damage and we notice that the white pine in between my house and the house next door, just right over, the winds weren't even that high. It just, the ground was soaked. It's got a shallow root system. There's no taproot yeah. to keep it upright. And it just fell as neatly as you please directly between two houses. Nobody was hurt. Nobody was injured. No, no property damage. Everything was fine. But it really makes you think about how long that tree has been standing, what its root system would look like, and how it just fell, fell over. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. These, those things actually have an interesting way of falling over and then standing right back up mm. because they're both the, both the root systems and the tree itself are like, oh, no, I, think I'm, I think, don't think I'm done yet. And they'll stand <laughs> themselves back up. Wow. Which is why you see those pictures of, you know, parents and grandparents posing their kids by these enormous root systems. And you're like, please don't do that. Cause that, that could, that could go really badly. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> what, now that you've finished your most recent book that I'm really excited about, what plant ally are you working with the most right now? Oh, great question. At, at this very moment, um, I am having a love affair with foxglove. Um, I have some foxglove flower essence in my water right now to sip during this. I have one foxglove plant out of all the seedlings I tried. I've got one that survived. It's been growing for just about a year. So we're in year two. I'm, I'm hoping this means soon we'll see a flower spike come up. Florida's got intense weather, so I'm hoping we can kind of shorten the the cycle of the biennial here and get flowers soon. But uh, there's so much joy in this plant. And I totally get it. if I go and chew on these leaves, the cardiac glycosides in it are not going to be my friend. But I can't help but like touch the fuzzy leaves and just there's there's this kind of whimsical nature about it, even even without the, the flower spike coming out just yet. Um, as a flower essence, I find it so good for embracing uncertainty and vulnerability. Um, traditionally, it's a plant that's used, as, as I'm sure you know, for like medicinal purposes for the heart and homeopathy. It's good for 
um, cardiovascular health, but in, in homeopathy, it's also used uh, for fear, especially fear related to like um, life changes, moving and death. So, you know, things that are unknown, the great big um, unknown factors. And as an essence, it, it kind of embraces these things. It has a heart opening quality. We look at the shape of the flowers they are like little bells or chimes that open outward and it helps the heart not put up those walls during times of uncertainty or change or strong emotions like fear, anxiety, shame, guilt, anger, resentment, whatever it is, like those things that make us tend to withdraw. This is a stone that says, no, stand up and bloom. Like this is fertile ground for you to, to grow and heal. And yes, it's uncomfortable and sometimes it sucks. But if we align ourselves with the bigger picture, the heart can be radiant in spite of it. So lovely because that you just, when the flowers bloom, you just sort of want to crawl inside of them and have this, this whimsical is a great word, adventure with, you know, they call them fairy thimbles for a reason. Mm-hmm. But it's so wonderful to have that really soft kind of nurturing energy with uh with your plant allies i work with with some heavy hitters and you know i've, I've got my deturas and my mm. my belladonnas i probably daily wear um and anoint myself with mugwort but that energy from those little flowers <laughs> is just <laughs> there's there's not a good enough word for it because it's the nurturing and the heart opening qualities that you mentioned are just so prevalent, but not in a pushy way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I I love Datura. I mean, I I'm a witch. How how can I not love nightshades <laughs> as a whole? Um, and Datura is one that uh, I've been growing in the garden with limited success, mixed success, we'll say, off and on for a couple of years now, and. Um, I've got, I've got a couple that went feral on me. They were like a fancy hybrid, the fastuosa variety of Mattel. And mm. when, when they reproduced, it's, it seeded itself unbeknownst to me. I hadn't actually sown any of the seeds and it, it went ahead and did it itself. And they reverted back to just the plain Mattel with white flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got some stramonium and some uh, inoxia uh, seedlings right now. And then I'm trying my hardest to get a couple other varieties to um, to germinate. So we'll see, but that's, that's a, another essence I work with a lot, um, especially for more ritual purposes. That's one that I don't tend to take quite so casually, but when you feel like you're in free fall, it is an essence of psychic surrender. I feel like it is a little less, we'll say emotionally inclined than some flower essences. It really works on those higher, higher aspects of, of mind and psyche. And, um, it is really great when you have to get through the ick inside. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of the work that I do with flower essences, especially with the baneful ones, you know, it's it's fight fire with fire, it's heal like with like. So when we've got those toxic persistent patterns, we we pull out the heavy hitters that are these toxic plants. And thankfully, as flower essences, you know, no biochemically active stuff is in there, no phytochemicals. I'm not in danger of poisoning myself. But uh, I, I find Atura to be so seductive and enigmatic and just a little bit dangerous. And I like that. <laughs> Some of the other are, nightshades are maybe too dangerous for me, but I really like Datura. Have are, are there more poison path plants in the new book or is it more uh, traditionally available essences? All of the above. Yes. Um, 
I, I tried to have as good a mix as possible. Um, some of the plants in there are ones you'll find in like the, the Bach flower remedies, not too many because you can find so much written on them, although maybe not from a more magically oriented mindset. Um, but I, in my plant spirit work, I use the classification that Christopher Penzak writes about in his plant spirit familiar book. Um, so he does everything in threes. So he's got um, baneful plants, the balms, and then the trees, which are kind of the teachers. And some of my other flower essence training really echoes this really well. Even Dr. Bach had a threefold classification system for plants. And um, it's not a perfect one for one, but you can see parallels between the same kind of classification. So there's a good amount of banes. I would say maybe a third of the plants in the book are what I would call baneful, whether it's the traditionally like poison path plants or maybe they're, they're gentler relatives. I find the spirit of tomato and potato to be very akin to the spirits of many other nightshades. Um, you know, mandrake produces edible fruits. So just, just because we eat potatoes and tomatoes doesn't mean that they aren't baneful. I mean, chew on some leaves and you'll <laughs> find, find out otherwise. And then you get things that are kind of like weirdly in the middle. So, um, you know, a really good example could be something like clematis, one of Dr. Bach's original remedies. He considered to be very medicinal, but there's, there's really no extant lore about it being used in medicine much at all. Um, and uh, there's, there's plenty of indication that if you rub this plant on your body, bad things will happen. Um, <laughs> and so I, I still treat that as a kind of baneful spirit. So um, I, I, I categorize all the plants as being um, banes, balms, or trees in the book. And sometimes that means we have to bend the rules a bit uh, because, you know, saguaro cactus, one of my favorite flower essences, is not really any of those things. But if you look at the verticality of it and the sort of presence it's, it's ability to guide us. It functions like a tree. So honorarily, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love the way that we get to talk about the, not just the physicality of the plants, but the, the spirit, uh, the grand spirit and master spirit of each of these plants and how they can really interact with us in our, um, both our magical work as well as our emotional work. I had some really amazing uh, flying ointments from two of cats mm -hmm. uh, from uh, Tara Love McGuire, for, you know, mm -hmm. the pairing of uh, Christopher Oropello and Tara Love McGuire, who wrote Bessem Stang and Sword. Uh, yeah. Actually, have them right here on my desk. Let's see, we have Violet Vale is the Belladonna, then Hedge Rider is her Mugwort, and Gorgonium is a Pudger Pig only. It's um, patchouli sage and rosemary and the mm. um oh and the hanged man is downstairs that's her um detura yeah that it's uh she's i just love all of them if you have a chance to you know when things are thingsing again please feel free you see two of cats go tell tara amy says hi um these her materials are really incredible her ground incenses are spectacular. I think my favorite right now is her stompy boots, which is great for <laughs> clearing out that scattered energy that, but mm. sort of 2020 just impermeate, just embodied. <laughs> yeah. You said you found witchcraft at about 30, you said 13? Somewhere around there. Um, my, 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 my spiritual path kind of overlapped several practices until I found a scaffolding. The first scaffolding I found, like the first system I could like read in a book and do all myself without, without outside stuff was witchcraft. 
How did your family feel about this? At one point, did you let your family know this is something that's important to me? Um, well, I was always a weird kid. So thankfully, like, that was a platform. I could do a certain amount of, of weird things and get away with it. I tried not to be too overt, like, so guys, I'm a dedicated witch now. I'm going to go call some spirits um, into a circle upstairs. Don't bother me for 20 minutes. Like, I'd, I'd always find ways to, to do things with great subtlety or outside of the house during playtime outside or on a walk in nature um, or late at night when the rest of the house was asleep. And um, it was just kind of an organic thing. It started out with like, I always loved folklore and fairy tales and mythology. And I'm super fascinated by the religions of the world. I wasn't raised super religious. My, my parents both had a lot of religion growing up and then we didn't have any in the house and they've, they've come back to it um, as, as they've aged. And I've, I've kind of sampled from the buffet of, of world religions and spiritualities accordingly. Um, and I would say that the plate I've served a lot of them on is, is uh, we'll say, constructed of witchy things, um, but I've tried my hands at a whole lot. So I'd say maybe about 16 or 17 or so, I probably had like the conversation with my dad and it was like, hey, so I've got this book. Um, I'd like you to look through it just so you know that the things that I do are not terrible things. Um, and it was a copy of Team Witch by Silver Ravenwolf. Of course, I'd read much more advanced things by this point, but I'd like gone through and highlighted things that really iterated my, my belief system and practices. So he would go through and think, one, I'd been really studious, so we could at least use that as the excuse for not being studious about my homework. Um, <laughs> um, and, and two, to, to emphasize that like there wasn't anything you know, dark and spooky going on there. And they just kind of dealt with it. It wasn't, it wasn't a really awkward kind of thing. I, I think that it gave me um, a, a better moral platform than having no religion at all. And I mean, honestly, if the only reason you're doing good stuff is because your religion says bad things will happen otherwise, I don't think your religion's doing good for you. So um, witchcraft was good in that way. It helped me do things because they were ethically right. Like I'll, I'll never forget reading um, Phyllis Curate talking about her, her ethics system. Like we shouldn't do something good or avoid something bad because of this rule of three. We should do things that we find morally just because they're morally just, period. We don't, we don't need karmic repercussions to convince us to do one thing or another. And that has always stuck with me. So um, it's not entirely karma be damned, but like do what you gotta do and do it because it's the right thing to do or the just thing to do or the appropriate thing to do. And whether that's right or just from someone else's lens is not really important to me. That is so fantastic. She's just a delight as a, as a person. I had the joy of being a part of a panel discussion with her during the, the height of the pandemic. So obviously it's a blur as to which one it was. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, all Zoom screens look the same after a while. Uh, but I was able to tell her this, this, she appeared at Blessed Be a Meet Me in DC in I think 2000, maybe 2001. And I was a fully fledged person in my own power. I had been practicing with other people. I had been sort of figuring out my own deal and seeing her at this event was really incredible. I had a great experience but also she was just the sweetest human. You know, I, I was obviously very excited to meet her. This was about <laughs> a, 
a year after Book of Shadows came out and I read it seven times probably. Yeah. <laughs> it was um, the featured book in one of those spiritual book of the month clubs. And I'm like, oh, they're actually t- talking about witchy things. It's not just generic new age thing. Okay, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to check it out. And she's just a, a lovely human. I'm uh, so glad to hear that. <laughs> I've, it's I've it's been, so easy. Yeah, I've, I've been really blessed. A lot of the people I grew up looking up to have turned out that way. Um, so, you know, nary a bad word could be said about Silver Ravenwolf. She's just a delight through and through. And, um, you know, one of my close allies and mentors and teachers and guides and friends these days is Christopher Penzak, who wrote the forward to the new book on Flower Essences. And, um, you know, I, I read, I read, I think my first book of his that I read was um, Gay Witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't entirely out yet on, on either front, <laughs> um, the queer front or the witchy front, but um, here was this book that was like validated both parts of me and gave me a way to incorporate and, and kind of reconcile how, how it might work differently for an LGBTQ person. And that was really useful. And, uh, you know, years later, I just befriended him on Facebook. We struck up, a, struck up a conversation. We've been like friends ever since. And I've gotten this chance to study with him. And it's just great. So I think there are some really phenomenal people in this community. And of course, there are others. But, you know, we can celebrate the Amy Blackthorns of the world and the Aww. Christopher Penzacks of the world. And that's, that's what I love doing. To have my name mentioned in the, even in the same sentence as Christopher Penzac is incredibly flattering. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, of course, I've known his work forever. Um, his books were one of the most frequently sold at, I, I worked at a witchy shop from 2007 to 2010, uh, a place called Mystical Voyage. At the time it was open, it was the largest uh, new age store, witchy store um, in the country. It was you know, oh, wow. several thousand square feet, several, uh, it was a, in a strip mall of all places. And there were, it was several bays worth of shop by the time they had expanded a few times so there was a coffee shop there was the gift shop there was a holistic health center there was a yoga studio it was just took up the an entire end of a, a shopping center and christopher came to visit for the grand opening with the incredible dorothy morrison uh, mm. so we we got to strike up a professional conversation like you know how are you doing what can i do for you i was sort of the liaison for a lot of this setup material and even as the uh, a behind the scenes person, just just a dear to to talk to, to be with, to um, enjoy their company. It's hmm. there are a lot of people in our community, and he's just one of the dearest ones. And it's it's really fabulous to get to see and have the validation when someone just is that sweet in real life. Absolutely. So I have a I have a, a bad author question. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, is any one of your books any closer to your heart um, than any other? I'm not going to ask which one is your favorite because that I hate that question. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm always like picking a favorite child, but is there one that's mm-hmm. a little closer to your heart? I think the answer to this question changes with the seasons, especially with the publication of a new book, because your new book is always your favorite while yes. it's new. Um, I'm, I'm a year out from 
the publication of my most recent book, Crystal Basics. And I think it is important and it is pivotal and it is, um, it was a, a, a big undertaking that felt really easy to do, which is nice, but forever, I think the one that will be nearest and dearest to my heart is gonna be um, my first book because it, it wasn't written for other people. I very selfishly wrote it because I wanted to prove that I could and then very unselfishly hoped that it would teach people how to think for themselves. Um, but that, that was kind of, I wanted to do something that had never been done before in the world of crystals. And so I did it. And uh, that has been the general consensus. There's nothing like this in the world of crystals. <laughs> um, and I don't know if there ever will be again. I, I toyed with the idea of a, uh, I, don't, I won't say directly a sequel, but using that same kind of format to, to approach other stones. Um, so that's, that's always gonna have a special place in my heart and stones of the goddess as well. Um, everything about it, the art, the, the fact that it's much witchier than all my other books on, until the next one, at least. <laughs> um, uh, you know, kind of leaning into witchcraft and magic and paganism full swing and getting to explore other parts of, of the mineral world. I love the intersection between metaphysics and magic and mineral science and lore and history and, and like bringing all those things together. So I really, I, I really am fond of that book too. So if I keep talking though, I'll give you a reason for all of them. So we'll just leave it those two. <laughs> How about you? Which, which one is your favorite? I swear it's the first one uh, because there's so much stuff that we're trying to, to pack into the first one because you never know if there's going to be a second one. Mm -hmm. so it's obviously it's my it's much larger than any of my other works uh it's it, it I, eighty-five thousand words ish and it's currently my biggest project and there's so much i i want to put in and i want i had to really fight with myself which we'll say 50 botanicals do i include which ones are going to get left out you know mm -hmm. once we once my list was set and the book was written, they're like, oh, you, well, you didn't say anything about lime, but you did literally every other citrus on the planet. Do we think we need lime too? And you're like, what do I cut? What do I leave in? So yeah. all of that learning that, that my editor and I did together uh, was such a big part of laying the foundation for who I am as an author, as well as the writer, Amy. You know, when you when you have to go out in public and be the the author it's much different than when you're sitting at home yelling at the walls <laughs> <laughs> i uh, i had a moment in writing botanical magic where this this epiphany just smacked me right in the face as i'm sort of going through this ex the, the ex existential crisis that happens when you write your first book no one tells you about this but my my brain sort of landed on the fact that this book is going to be around after I am no longer, after my bones are dust, the, there will still be copies of this book in libraries and laying around in somebody's grandma's basement. The words that you put out into the world are there. I mean, we always have books that will, you know, we'd want to update and we'd want to maybe change a thing or two, but books are a liminal space and they occupy where your brain was, where your heart was, where your soul was at this specific point in time. Mm. We can grow and change and, and evolve as practitioners, as witches, as, as people. But that little snapshot of where we were at that point will, will exist forever. And it's such an amazing feeling 
that I had no basis for, that I had no ex expectation of. And so I think that's why I'm finding that everybody's first book is probably the answer. Oh yeah, I I don't think I'd really thought about in such concrete terms how these words are gonna live on like that. I mean, I, I think of like, what is the legacy I'm leaving? But that was a really poignant image you just painted. So thank you for sharing that. And I can't agree more with the idea that um, you will always grow and there'll be a part of you that recognizes a book is never done. You've never finished a manuscript. You just have to hit send at some point. Absolutely. You're, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna change on the inside and you will wish that a book had reflected that um i i have new historical data that i have uh received from the tireless work of academics and researchers in the reiki field that i i wish was in my book which came out years ago and it it won't be at least not until there's a revised edition or a reprint where I can add a, a squeeze in a footnote somewhere without changing everything on a page and having to you know typeset the whole thing all over again. And uh, you you just have to be so aware of the fact that a book is a snapshot in time. And I think author to author we know that, but I don't think the general consumer, the the average reader, does. And no. I, I wonder how many authors are beholden to things they said 20, 30, 40 years ago, even though they've changed and adapted and grown. I think um, a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping the, the world will be kinder to our generation because <laughs> we have platforms like this to describe these things. And they, we have this visual as readers of, oh yeah, somebody just walks out by and inserts a word and everything's fine, but you're right. The entire book would have to be retype set. The, it's not just, oh, I guess I can insert a word because I can see this on Kindle. No, honey, that's not how this works. Yeah. And there's so much that goes into it that even on reprints, they may not choose to update because there's, there's so much more work that goes into it. Yeah. Is there a project on the horizon that you'd like to talk about, that you can talk about? Yeah, I, I have a few irons in the fire. I'm nearing completion on my eighth manuscript. So flower essences is the next topic. And then I go back to rocks. I like to kind of mix it up. Rocks for a little bit, something else. Rocks for a little bit and something else. Um, so I'm working on, we'll say a smaller format reference book. And it will have several hundred stones in it. Um, I'm... I'm unsure of exactly what the final count is going to be, similar to when you did the oils and, and botanical magic. You know, what is the finite number? What is the actual lineup <laughs> going to be? And I keep changing it. And I, I've been asked to be flexible on what the final count is going to be because it, to meet the requirements to be a more portable book, um, Crystal Basics is hefty. She's, she's a big girl. And I love that about her, but I get that she's not like going to fit in anyone's pocket and to go in a messenger bag or purse is a little unwieldy. So I want to write something for that portion of the market to have something you can take with you to the book and or to the bookstore or to the crystal store. And I want this to be in some ways a companion volume to Crystal Basics because I have a heck of a lot more rocks in it, um, but also be a standalone reference guide. So that's that's what I'm working on now. The lineup of crystals is 90, I think as of today, 98% done. Mm. And then I have like 
maybe a couple thousand words to play with to write all the introductory stuff, all like how to work with crystals. And if um, if time and space permit, I'll, I might be able to do some reference charts in the back. I'm not too sure, but it's definitely mostly like an A to Z crystal guide, very short, very brief, like at a glance, fully illustrated. It'll give you the same kind of body, mind, spirit properties that Crystal Basics does, plus magical correspondences real briefly yes. with uh, elements, planets, astrological signs. Um, so it's it's going to be a little bit of an extension, a little bit a little bit different than what you got out of Crystal Basics. And I'm, I'm excited to be able to bring that to life. And with any luck, um, the expectation is it'll be out at the end of next year. So toward the end of 2022. Fantastic. So are we thinking like, um a judy hall like a four by four chunky you can just tuck it in a bag and go maybe um i i have released expectations i'm gonna permit whatever needs to happen to happen because that's that's how this goes <laughs> it's the only way um, you keep your sanity <laughs> right uh with with 450 stones currently as my oh. projected goal if it's if it's one if it's one stone per page that's 225 leaves that's that's not a thin book anymore. It becomes less pocket-sized. So, um, you know, it might be a larger trim size just to get a couple of stones per page, and that would be thinner, less paper, easier easier to carry with you. So I'm, the, the idea was to have something affordable and easy to get out there, a great stocking stuffer for the holidays. I mean, <laughs> we've, we've, we've really gone back and forth on the kind of platform for it, but ultimately it's up to my publisher is really competent and wonderful, amazing, talented team to pick the size and the shape and all that fun stuff. I just, I just got to give them the words and the pictures, and they do the rest. I, I want to say, God bless our publishers because <laughs> I could not have to make to decide every you know which font to use, how much, how big are the margins to decide all these things as a self-published uh, author is bless you. I, I just want to hand somebody yeah. my words. I just, <laughs> the, the really incredible and talented teams of people that we work with. Uh, I'm, I'm very, I think we're very lucky. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that is a, a constant thing that I practice gratitude for every time a, a reader, a student, someone who thinks they're, they're genuinely um, helping me in some way and suggest, well, why don't you self-publish? Cause you'd get like so much more of the profit or you'd have so much more control. I'd be like, but I have to do so much more work. I'm not the expert in typesetting. I'm not the expert in sales. I'm not the expert in, uh, you know, uh, cover design and all that other fun stuff. Why not let a talented team of professionals do all of that for me? And then I can go write another book while they're doing that which is exactly. historically how it goes. So, um, <laughs> yes, they do their they, thing. I, I mean, I'm here typing away and, and I don't have to worry about all those other things. They just, they hire people who do their very best job and I don't have to be an expert in a million things. Right. I just have to be the expert in Nicholas. And, and that's like a full-time and a half job. So. Boy, um, howdy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wanted to thank you for your time. Uh, how can our listeners find you? How can we support you? So I try to be real active on social media. And I think like most of us, I go through bouts, but um, you can find me as the luminous pearl in most places. So whether that's facebook.com slash the luminous pearl or at the luminous pearl on Instagram and TikTok, uh, those are the places I'm, I'm most active. 
Uh, you can also reach out through my website. Very predictably, it's theluminouspearl.com. Um, so all of those are, are viable ways to reach me. Also, you can check out my publisher's website, innertraditions.com. They have a ton of great links to stuff I've done that you can listen to or watch or subscribe for free. And that's, that's a, a great list of extra resources too, but I'm just so grateful to spend this time with you. I'm grateful to our audience for tuning in. So thanks for having some, uh, some magic with me today, Amy. Thank you so much for stopping by. Well, that's it for us for today. Remember, we're all trees in the forest. Nurture each other.